And uh, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the show dedicated to stories told through the medium of sound, showcasing the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. Here you hear news, reviews, discussion, and of course, stories. I'm your host, Fred. Well, uh, judging by the nature of the weather around here, you'd think I'd want to feature Drizzle again on the show, but actually we'll be returning to Williamsville, a quirky little town where nothing seems to change, yet more weirdness is under the surface than anyone likes to admit. Uh, this is one of my own. It's produced underneath the Final Rune moniker. Uh, it was recorded here at WMPG in Portland, Maine, uh, with all USM students mixed in my own apartment with original uh, art and music from local artists, so truly a homegrown production that is uh, for our Maine listeners, everybody else. Um, can, you know, just appreciate uh, what a locally produced product it is. And I hope you enjoy hearing it again, or for the first time, as the case may be. Uh, the CDs of this work are now available. You can order them at finalroom.com and hopefully in some local bookstores lately, but uh, we'll see how that goes. And uh, as a quick disclaimer, this work does have some mature themes. It's uh, not likely to be offensive to too many people, but not appropriate for younger audiences, so viewer discretion is advised. <clears throat> uh, enjoy Tales from Williamsville. Final Rune Productions presents Tales from Williamsville, a story by John Coons, adapted for audio by Frederick Greenhalge. Welcome to Williamsville, a town of single-family homes, above-average incomes, two-car garages, and more Joneses than Fifth Avenue. The illustrious history of Williamsville began with the Treaty of 1742, when Joseph R. Williams I, a destitute Irishman on the run from the law, got the local Indian chief to sign a treaty handing the land over to him one late night over two bottles of Finnegan's Finest. The modest start to Williamsville was in baskets and beaver pelts, their rise to fame the great textile mills of the late 19th century, and a gracious end to this time of boozing and caterwauling came as the Great Depression ripped the guts out of the industry and left the ugly downtown to rot as post-war sprawl took hold. Oh, it's only been up, up, up for Williamsville in the last 50 years, though many old-timers will tell you that nothing really changes around here. It's a small place, a pleasant place, a great place to raise your kids, but not a place without its stories. The story today begins with Michael Burbank, data entry clerk at the local feed store for the last seven years, a position he slid into after his community college internship. Yet, a steady income, benefits, and a 401k plan did little to assuage Michael's Damocles-like sense of guilt. Michael, it hardly looks like you opened the cover of this one. It all started ten years ago at the library. Uh, uh sure I did, Mrs. Jaworski, see? You probably downloaded those notes off the internet. You've been pretending to read the summer reading list, haven't you? Well, I... I... Now, how do uh, you ever expect to pass the SATs if you don't start reading now? Why, you'll never get into a good college, let alone your ridiculous ambition to be a writer. But, but Mrs. Jaworski, I've been trying Only to... Only losers try. Stop wasting my time. Ah! Ever since that childhood infraction, Michael committed himself to reading every single volume in the looming stacks, a task that would be better suited to Sisyphus. There are too many stupid books. No one can read them all. Not that any of them are good, anyway. Michael may not have met his erudite expectations, but he knew when he was lying to himself. I should read more. And with that, the cycle would begin again. He'd compile a reading list and read more vigilantly than a conspiracy theorist. But it always ended up like a French novel. Sadly, and yet true to himself, he never reached his lofty goal. Stupid, 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 stupid! The sheer population of books reminded him of how little he had accomplished compared to everyone else. I've never finished this series, and and I've never finished even one section of this stupid library, and this is one stupid library in the whole stupid world! Worst of all, he knew he'd never write a book. No, that kind of immortality was reserved for those with far more gumption than he. 
Even if that book sold just five copies... Three of them to my mother. It would be something permanent, a lasting contribution to society. Yet he knew he'd never be good enough to write a single paragraph. It was this guilt that led Michael to arson. But we'll get to that part of the story later. Twenty-five cents, and that's my final offer. Yes, Mrs. Tweeter. That's what the sign says. Mom said not to charge too much. And not a penny more. You can't rickshaw me into more than, oh, fifty cents. Oh, of course, Mrs. Tweeter. I'd never think of... That settles it. Here's a dollar. Uh, well, thank you, Mrs. Tweeter. Slick fish little brat. Neither the girl nor her mom could ever decipher the incident of arsenic and old lace. The VHS Abigail Tweeter, or... Abba Tweeter, as she was called in the adult circles, had insisted on haggling over at the Labor Day yard sale. No one on the block suspected Miss Abigail Tweeter's carefully hidden secret. (laughs) Abigail Tweeter was entertaining nightly. But if Abigail Tweeter had the best-kept secret in Williamsville, Rick Lovely had the worst. Hey! What can I do for you? You, uh, rent by the hour? <laughs> sure do. If you pay cash. Rick Lovely. Rick owned Lovely's One Stop, Lovely's Motel, and 18.7% of the rest of Williamsville. He drove a Lincoln Town Car with $2,000 chrome rims, lived in a house dubbed a ludicrous display of opulence by the Williamsville Coronet, and had a different Hawaiian shirt for every day of the year. He inherited all this from his father, who met a premature end for reasons that eluded only the most naive in Williamsville. Reasons related to his other profession. Rick Lovely, the man everyone loved to hate in Williamsville. The man with the omnipresent smile that didn't so much beam like sunshine, but glimmer like the edge of a knife. Which brings us to Helen Bintliff, queen of the housewives, empress of the suburbs, alpha among the pack of mothers that patrolled Williamsville's streets. Indeed, Helen Bentliff was a legend among Williamsville's mothers. She's got eyes like eagles. The cooking skills of Julia Child. The schedule of a head of state. The investment portfolio of a New York stockbroker. And the grin of Rosie the Riveter. And with six children, she also had a uterus capable of passing a Buick. To Helen, nothing was a challenge. It's a modern age, and I'm a modern woman. You have to keep up with the times. Go, 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 you know. A little coffee here, a little catnap there, and in the middle there are soccer games, small trips, business lunches, night classes towards my master's degree, house cleaning, church socials, committee meetings, piano recitals, and making the best bisque this side of the zen. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Stewarding this medley of upstanding citizens was the mayor, Joe Williams the Eleventh. Most people would call Joe Williams a good mayor. Or at least a fine mayor. An average mayor, at the very least. You couldn't find anything wrong with Joe Williams, with his moderate height, average weight, middle-aged, fair wife, 2.5 children, and dog. No one could say anything bad about the man who lived in a modest house with the same mailbox as everyone else, who received as much junk mail as the rest. And it was this, more than any virtue, that kept Joe Williams in office for the last 13 years. I put the Williams in Williamsville. Joe Williams was as comfortable as an old pair of sneakers. After all, the people had had a Joe for mayor since Williamsville's origins. He was practically tradition. And nothing made the people in Williamsville more comfortable than tradition. Though it wasn't tradition so much as routine that found Helen Bentliff shopping at the Piggly Wiggly that Tuesday afternoon. Attention shoppers! Don't miss the great pickle sale in aisle 13. Three for one sweet pickles, four dills for a dollar. 
Buy one, get one free of your favorite kinds of relish. Tuesday was two-for-one coupon day, and Helen charged down the aisles with her arsenal of coupons as if she was trying to repel the Germans. She was like an Olympian in the grocery store, and was hoping today to break her record 58.4 minutes of shopping time and steal a victory nap before picking the kids up from soccer practice. But as she wheeled around aisle 13, disaster struck. Oh, Helen! Oh, hi, Abitweeter. I, uh, didn't see you Now there. that's all right, Helen. These aisles just get smaller and smaller over the years. Isn't that right? Now I was just... Have you seen the sale on these pickles? Why, it's practically robbery. Back in my day, pickles were only a nickel. Can you believe it? A pickle for a nickel! Time sure have changed. Now if you'd excuse me. Wait. You don't have any teeth. How can you eat pickles? Oh, I manage. What, by sucking on them? Like I said, I was just leaving. Ta-ta! Helen had accidentally come closer to Abigail's secret than anyone yet. Abigail thanked her lucky stars that Helen hadn't taken the time to look in her cart, filled as it was with a bottle of peach schnapps, two filet mignons, a spool of rope, whipped cream, and six jars of the biggest pickles she could find. Tonight was a big night for Abigail Tweeter, the anniversary of the first night that Fred Stoops, the hapless mailman, had brought her a misplaced Sears catalog and stumbled right into her arms. 365 days of geriatric gyrations later, it was time to celebrate, and no one and nothing could ruin it for her, or her name wasn't Abigail Gertrude Tweeter, which it was, wasn't it? Meanwhile, Helen Bintliff quickly forgot about the incident in the grocery store and grudgingly missed her nap to pick up the kids, cook dinner, shower, and show up for the PTA meeting ten minutes ahead of time. You see, in Williamsville, if you wanted to get something done, you didn't go to the town meeting, you went to the PTA meeting. Because if you wanted the delirious enthusiasm of a southern revival gathering and more wild ideas than a network TV writer's room, you couldn't find a more captive audience than the PTA. After all, just about any cause justified the industrial-grade efficiency of the PTA, as long as it was in the best interests of the children. You know, that pothole on Main Street sure has been bugging me. Yes, uh, little Jenny tripped over that stupid oak in the middle of the park. It really needs to go. This thing about taking the Ten Commandments off the steps of the library? Well, that's against freedom of speech. Yeah! No one in Williamsville understood the juvenile justification system better than Helen Bentliff. And so it was this particular Tuesday, dressed in her exquisitely modest coral bisque cardigan, that Helen Bentliff launched her newest crusade, the battle against the town mill. <clears throat> now, as you all know, the town mill has been out of commission for as long. Well, as long as I've been here. And in that time, all it has done is sit, fester, and glower at us with its ugly, filthy brick facade. Now, I pray you mothers have had the sense not to take your children within a mile of that place, since I know for a fact that unsavory happenings take place within the auspices of its barbed wire fences. And I'm not just talking about broken glass and asbestos here, women. I'm talking about... <laughs> What is it? I don't know. Drugs! And sex! <gasps> yes! I know that some of our troubled sons and daughters... Oh, I don't know whose. Certainly not yours, Denise. Well, they've strayed into bad ways in that place. Why, there are condom wrappings everywhere, and graffiti depicting profanity, drugs, and sexual images! <gasps> How does she know all this? Shh! And after dark, when all of us good people are in our homes with our families, creatures that don't dare show their faces by the light of day go there to make shady dealings. Creatures like 
Mr. Lovely. Oh, goodness, sweet heavens. Now, tonight, I say to you, this must come to a stop. The mill cannot be allowed to poison our town any longer. We demand that it be torn down. Yeah! That it be torn down this instant. Yeah! And that we build a new shopping area in its place. Yeah! Yeah! And who's going to make it happen? Joe, Joe Williams. Williams. Or we'll have his head. Yeah! All right, go get them, girls. Oh, yes! We're going to go get them. This is going to be great. Sufficiently satisfied with her impending victory, Helen smiled as she walked out of the middle school, confident she would hear from the mayor before the night was through. It didn't take long for the landslide to hit. Watch as the male praying mantis approaches the female with an elaborate dance before assuming his mating position on her back. He's hardly aware, however, that she's about to tear off his head. <sighs> With the male's head removed, she slowly begins to eat the rest of his body. Williams residence. Now I'll have you know that your position on the military is practically infantile. You're practically you're going on It didn't take long for Joe Williams to figure out what was going on. You see, Joe Williams had a very simple system for responding to crises in Williamsville. One call? Forget it. Five calls? Uh, let me know how it turns out. Ten calls? No, I'll put someone on it. Fifteen calls? Look, we understand the situation and are responding accordingly. But twenty calls? Twenty calls meant one of two things had happened. One, a flood had taken out Main Street. Or two, code level PTA red. <sighs> Joe had dealt with problems with the PTA before. But this, this was 23 callers. This was a code Bentliff. Put the coffee back on, Judy. It's going to be a long night. It had already been a long day for Michael Burbank. He had suffered the endless ignominy of another day entering the figures of feed sales and negotiating with upset ranchers about recent changes in the pesticide policy. After rereading the opening paragraph of Anna Karenina 14 times, he stared out the window and realized tonight was the night. Tonight he'd burn the library down. While it's safe to say that Michael Burbank would have enjoyed Fahrenheit 451, he had, of course, never read it. He had, however, read the Anarchist Cookbook, and on this fair late September evening, he hauled a bag of fertilizer, a jug of homemade napalm, and a Zippo lighter to the steps of his 40-ton albatross of his existence. At last, I'll be free! <laughs> oh no, not cold feet! Though he despised her, he couldn't help imagining the face of Mrs. Jaworski, the librarian who was the bane of his existence, and the best friend of his mother's. Sure, burning down the library to rubble would get rid of his late fees, but what if it got rid of her? What if she moved to Florida with all the other old women and left him to fend for himself with his mother, the queen mother of guilt herself? Oh no, she'll spend more time visiting me. No, Michael thought, the library had to stay. I'll just burn something else. While Michael Burbank prowled the town looking for an appropriate place to practice his pyrotechnics, Abby Tweeter was finishing up what most of us try not to think about, 
sexual relations over the age of 65. Oh my. Sign seal delivered. We've had some special times this last year, Fred, but that was something special. How you just clutched me and didn't say a word. Oh, why don't you sigh with me, Fred? 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 It didn't take Abigail long to realize that Fred had delivered his last package and now had a first-class ticket to the great post office in the sky. Oh, Fred. Now I have to find a place to put your body. As Abigail contemplated the necrophiliatic turn of her love life, Michael had chosen the next place to dump his guilt. And napalm. Lovely's Motel was an interesting intersection of two worlds. Far enough away from town to allow for nearly uninterrupted trading of illicit goods and services, but close enough to ship an unwanted in-law during an extended visit. Tonight was business as usual at Lovely's, and as Michael Burbank crept through the unlocked back door and onto the faded pink linoleum, he heard voices just ahead of him. So, we have a deal? Half grand in unmarked bills. Honey, I, I dig it. Glad to do business with you. Yeah, real piece of pie. Be there in an hour. Don't be late. If there's one thing I never am, Mr. Lovely, it's late. Of course not. Just keep that uh, little nose up in the air. Never know what you might smell down here. Good night, Mr. Lovely. Michael froze in the hallway, hearing half of the conversation and filling the rest in with inference and common knowledge. Figures. Bitch had to be on something. It was then that Michael realized that Lovely's motel wasn't appropriate for his fiery vengeance. What was left of his Catholic upbringing assured him that this place was headed to hell anyways. And besides, Rick Lovely had connections. Providing he survived the blaze, it wouldn't be long before he'd take Michael out. Isn't there any place I can burn down around here? Across town, Fred Stoops was fully dressed. His hair was combed, his eyes closed, and he smiled with a secret he took to the grave. All in all, Abigail Tweeter thought he looked extraordinarily comfortable as she slammed down the trunk of her Oldsmobile. At least, as comfortable as a corpse could be. Oh, Fred, you're so handsome. But why not wait until you got home to die? As Abigail Tweeter adjusted her rearview mirror, she briefly considered calling the police. No crime was committed, she would say. Save the crime of love. Yet, it wasn't the police that Abigail was worried about. It was the opinion of the neighborhood. When you're this close to the grave with your reputation intact, you can't throw the race. No sense wasting 73 years of good manners on a dead postman. And as Abigail Tweeter set out to accomplish her morbid deed, Helen Bentliff was walking into her living room, just in time for the phone call she'd predicted. Hello, Bentliff Residence. She flicked through the day's mail as the voice hesitantly came on the line. Ah, uh, yes, uh, Mrs. Bentliff, this is Mayor Joe Williams. Oh, Mr. Mayor, what an unexpected surprise. Yes, um, <clears throat> I suppose it is. What can I do for you, my dear? Well, uh, you see, uh, I heard about the PTA meeting tonight. Oh? What part? Um... Well... The candy bar fundraiser for the marching band? Because it is going so well. Those kids just love their Mr. Good Bars. I'm very happy for the band, uh, but that's not it. Oh? You see, it's just that I heard uh, some citizens are concerned about the town mill. Really? 
Well, I do remember the matter being under discussion. I- I'm just calling to let you know that I'm aware of the matter and doing everything in my power to work on several possible solutions that will, uh, well, resolve the problem. And none of them resemble your stupid proposal to revitalize the dump? No, uh, of course not. Well, it's truly titillating to hear that as representative of the people, you take our concerns to heart, Mr. Mayor. Don't mention it. There's just one thing. Yes? Well, I I thought I might impress upon you to make a few phone calls to alleviate the fears of the voters, uh, uh, townspeople. Me, Mr. Mayor? Why is that? Surely you know that you're looked upon as a bit of a figurehead in the town, Mrs. Bintliff. I'm sorry, I thought that was your job. I just thought you could call off your, uh, assuage the concerns of your fellows in the PTA. As soon as I see it in writing, Mr. Mayor. Good night. Good night, Mrs. Bintliff. With that, Joe Williams the Eleventh popped two more tums, and Helen Bentliff's omnipresent smile spread wider across her face. This time, however, it was true joy that shone on her cheeks, the joy of vindication. Having slipped the mare into her back pocket, tucked her children into bed, and dusted the living room for the second time, Helen grabbed her car keys and an inconspicuous manila envelope from a top cupboard and headed out five minutes ahead of schedule to meet with the town drug dealer. She had clearly never heard that you always wait for the man. It was a clear night with a full moon, and the gutted interior of the old mill seemed to glow. Though the center of the main room was mostly clear, the edges were stacked with everything from shattered glass to bricks, smashed televisions, and microwaves. Used condoms, cigarettes, and beer cans littered one end to the other, causing Helen Bentliff to twitch. She almost regretted that she wouldn't have the chance to mop, vacuum, and dust the place prior to its demolition. As she sat in the dark room, savoring her victory like she would an exquisite fillet, she had no idea how right she was. It was ten minutes after their appointed meeting time that the biggest piece of trash appeared, his Hawaiian shirt flapping around him like a cloak. He snubbed out his cigarette and walked confidently into the main room of the abandoned mill, where Helen Bentliff sat in the shadows humming, You Are My Sunshine. Evening, Helen. It's rude to keep people waiting. Yeah, well, I I had some uh, unexpected business. I see. So you have the money? Of course I do. Been a long time since I gave this much cash to abroad. Please mind your tongue, Mr. Lovely. I'd hate these photos to make their way onto the desk of the Williamsville coronet. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Here's your dough. So it's all here. I gotta ask, though. How'd you manage to write photos at just the right time? Oh, just luck, Mr. Lovely. I'm a member of the Neighborhood Watch, of course, and I just happened to belong to the Williamsville Photography Club on the side in my free time. I was working on a shoot of your rather infamous landmark and just happened to capture some of its more compromising moments on film. <clears throat> so you did. And what do you need the money for? Oh, I consider it a gift from the Almighty towards Davy's Harvard Fund. As Rick Lovely fought to not think too hard about the logic computed in Helen Bentliff's head, a battered Oldsmobile rolled up behind the mill. Perfect. By the time they find you, I'll be long gone to Florida. Oh, I've missed the sun so much. It's nice there, Fred. Why, 
It'll only be days of sunshine and iced tea until we reunite to laugh over God's junk mail. <sighs> okay, here you go. What was that? I don't know. Think about it, sweet cakes. You just committed a felony, too. I didn't do it. Hello? Abigail Tweeter wasn't one for profanity. In fact, she doubted she'd used a naughty word since 1976. But sometimes, the situation warranted it. Fudge bumpkins! Is someone there? Well, it wasn't a mouse, Helen. Abby Tweeter? For the first time in her life, Abigail Tweeter was at a loss for words. Oh. Hi, Helen. And is that the mailman? Uh, well, of course it is. He wasn't feeling well, so we... Now, wait a minute. Didn't I just hear Mr. Lovely? Yes, you see, there's a perfectly logical explanation to this. Uh, well, inspecting the place. For the demolition. We're on the committee. Demolition? It was at that perfectly awkward moment that Michael ignited his first fertilizer bomb. Ha ha ha! Eat this! Holy In the confusion, Helen grabbed Abigail and threw her over her shoulders like a running back. This lasted as far as the nearest awning, which collapsed in a fiery heap as they approached. Helen stood in horror as the flames leapt in. Hey, you idiots! Over here! They couldn't see Lovely through the plumes of smoke, but they staggered, coughed, and gagged until unexpectedly strong arms grabbed them and threw them through an open door and out into the night air. Helen lurched forward, almost trampling the old lady, and as quickly as relief swept her body, she realized her pockets were just a little lighter. Hey, Rick, the money! Get you later, Helen. Rick Lovely ran, high on life for once, the incriminating photographs burning to a crisp and the five grand in his back pocket. He was moments from leaping into his town car and careening to freedom when another blast lit up the September night. Oh! My entire stash was in there! Without saying another word to each other, Helen and Abigail got in their cars and drove home. <laughs> Three weeks later, Williamsville was essentially back to normal, save for an unexpected disruption in mail and a sudden surge in the rehab clinic's popularity. Abigail Tweeter was looking at nice Florida retirement communities. Ah, oh, well, this looks nice, don't it, Fred? Helen was the chairwoman leading the cleanup of the mill. From the ashes, Williamsville will rise again. She had meanwhile begun taking pottery classes, joined Oprah's book club, and been named Mother of the Year by the Coronet. Joe Williams was cruising into another uncontested re-election, and for the first time he had nixed the I put the Williams in Williamsville line. The people of this town are on fire. Yay. Rick Lovely had found his way into the next sleaziest business, cell sales. Oh, uh, this one's great, and it's only got a three-year contract. And Michael? Well, Michael didn't feel guilt anymore, not even around his mother. He even had the gall to enter the library and say, Hi, Miss Jaworski. Hi, Michael. He took out the same book he'd taken out 18 times before, The Idiot's Guide to Cooking. He found the reading the different oven temperatures relaxing. No, Michael never felt guilty anymore. After all, in one night, he'd done more than the mayor had managed in four years. Tradition. Yes, it was tradition and its cousin routine that kept the wheels turning in Williamsville. And happiness? Well... Happiness was always in the running for next year.
Tales from Williamsville was directed and produced by Frederick Greenhalgh. Story by John Coons. Adapted for audio by Frederick Greenhalgh. You're John Coons, the narrator. Corey Anderson is Michael Burbank in Announcer 2. Rachel Stoltz is Mrs. Jaworski in Announcer 1. Kate Gutchis is Abigail Tweeter in Mother 2. Mia Perrin is Girl in Mother 1. Stacey Ann Strang is Helen Bintliff. And Nathan Amidon is Rick Lovely and Joe Williams the 11th. Original music composed by Tony Michaud of Little Melodies, LittleMelodies.com. Supplemental music from SoundRangers.com. Sound effects by SoundDogs.com and recorded live. For more information on Final Rune Productions, go to www.finalrune.com where you can listen to all of our previous stories, see the upcoming lineup, and read more about the art of audio drama. That's www.finalrune.com. Thanks for listening. And again, that was uh, Tales from Williamsville by my own Final Rune Productions. And uh, you can learn more about that work by going to Final Rune's site, www.finalrune.com. Uh, F-I-N-A-L-R-U-N-E.com. I've got pictures on there with shots from the production, some liner notes, links to the full quality version of the story, of course, and profiles, and some of the great voice actors and actresses who participated. Uh, and if you are a budding talent yourself in sound design, music, acting, whatever, uh, please fill out the contact form on there. Let me know. Uh, you can also email fred at radiodramarevival.com or fred at finalrune.com. I'll be producing some new stories this fall, and I'm always looking for passionate new talent. So next week, maybe a mystery episode. I've uh, been listening to a lot of great things and haven't quite decided uh, what will be the next to treat your ears, but uh, I assure you uh, it'll be high quality, diverse, and unlike anything you've heard so far on the show. So I hope you enjoy uh, tuning in next week for that. In the meantime, you can check out more audio news, reviews, and discussion at the blog, www.radiodramarevival.com. You can also uh, subscribe to the podcast or download previous episodes there. You can also check us out on the iTunes store by doing a search for Radio Drama Revival. How's that? <clears throat> Anyways, uh, Fred at radiodramarevival.com if you want to submit your feedback, critique, or criticism. Till next week, keep your mind and your ears open. Thanks for tuning in, and have a great week.